Well, hello there. This is Guy Stevens, uh, the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. And I am very, very excited today to be starting our first ever uh, Facebook Live event. Uh, we're getting ready to start a series of interviews and training events over the next coming weeks, uh, really with the goal of, of helping those of you in our audience and helping to support some better causes. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, I was the founder and, and the executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, our organization is one that started a little over a year ago, and our goal is to help to reduce and eliminate the use, the practices of restraint and seclusion. Uh, we're trying to provide helpful information to uh, parents, teachers, advocates, and others uh, that are also on this journey with us. We've got a really exciting series of training events and interviews coming up, and this is the first one we're, we're doing ever. So keep in mind, this is uh, live, uh, live TV, live internet, so things may, <laughs> may and can go wrong, but we're hoping that things go well. Uh, so with that, I want to introduce you to our guest today, uh, who is Pam Tolley. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about, excuse me, Pam Tolley. I'm, uh, see, I'm al already going, going live here. So Beth Tolley, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit about Beth and uh, then let her introduce herself and we'll get started here. So Beth actually has a uh, BS degree in physical therapy and a master's in inter interdisciplinary studies. Uh, she's worked as a physical therapist and later an administrator at Children's Hospital for 24 years. Uh, the last 19 years of her career, she spent uh, at the Virginia's, um, the, the lead Virginia agency for early intervention. Uh, Beth's post-retirement work includes serving as a uh, director of the educational strategy here at the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, she's also working in, on advisory boards and committees and participating in a lot of advocacy work, uh, providing parent training and facilitating uh, support groups as well. Uh, in addition to all of uh, all of her credentials, I'm very, very excited uh, not only to call Beth a, a friend and a colleague here at the Alliance, uh, you would not meet a more caring individual that's really trying to make a difference. And I'm really, really excited to have uh, Beth here today to talk about some of the work that she's done. Uh, you may have uh, recently seen, um, we have a uh, article on our website. Uh, and if you haven't been to our website before, it's nseclusion.org. And when you go to the website and if you go under research, uh, Beth, you know, we mentioned has retired, but she's probably been working uh, harder in retirement than the uh, the previous, uh, you know, uh, years. Uh, you know, she's been working on a lot of things, uh, but she's been doing some fantastic research. And one of her recent pieces was an article called in uh, Education or Incarceration. And it's really an in-depth article about something called the school to prison pipeline, uh, which is what we're here to talk to you about today. So uh, I'm going to let Beth uh, introduce herself a little bit more as well, and uh, we will get started here with the um, session. So Beth, uh, welcome, and thank you again for uh, joining us today. It's really exciting to have you here. Okay, well, thank you. I'm um, really glad to be here, and uh, I do have a sister-in-law named Pam, so, you know, <laughs> I'm not even quite sure. I'm not even quite sure where that came from. So we do have no a family on our team. So that you know, yes, that's, that's, that's right. Good. No that's problem. Great. And and my work as an administrator was assistant administrator. So I'll just clear that up. I never <laughs> don't go all the way up. Um, We're I'm all really, about promotions here. Yeah, really. <laughs> I love the work that I'm doing. The um, uh, it's a chance in retirement to do what you really want to do, and. So we'll talk more about um, how how we got into this, but I mean, how I got into this. Um, and in fact, I think you have some questions for me about what got me started. So we'll just, um, 
we'll just go with, I'm going to go right into get started with the, the interview. Great. Yeah, let's go get started with the interview and then we'll lead into that. Okay. <clears throat> so I mentioned the, the article as we were getting started here. So you've written this fantastic research piece on what's called the school to prison pipeline. And uh, while you have a lot of depth in this area now, uh, I'm sure there are pe people out there that are, are well familiar with the term, but others that may not be at all familiar with what is meant by the school to prison pipeline. So can you tell our um, audience here kind of what is the school to prison pipeline? The school to prison pipeline is the ter a term that was coined to capture uh, a number of things, the harsh discipline, um, practices that remove students from class, suspension, expulsion. Um, also, I'd say the restraint and seclusion that also take kids out of class time. Uh, it's also about the prison-like environments that schools have become like in, in some schools. Those are things like the policing, searches, um, also again, restraint and seclusion that makes school feel like prison, also metal, de metal detectors. Um, over-reliance on, on police within the prison, where police uh, originally was to be to keep schools safe, um, but somehow in a lot of places that morphed into um, policing the students themselves instead of keeping the schools safe from outside threat. And then this was surprising to me. I didn't understand how high-stakes testing had anything to do with the school to prison pipeline, but that kind of kept coming up. And as I read more, um, it had to do with kids who were not performing well, pushing them out because they were bringing down the school's performance and school's ratings were based on their performance and school's funding ratings, all of this was based on how well the school did. So schools didn't want those kids as a part of their ratings, so they were pushed out. It's just horrendous. <laughs> um, so all of that was a, is a part of this, this school to prison pipeline. Okay, great. And, and, and I want to invite people as well, you know, as we're going through, uh, if you have questions, you can certainly put those in the comment feed. We'll try to keep an eye on those. Uh, if we, we don't see it right away, um, you know, don't hesitate to ask it again. Uh, you know, it's a lot to watch here as you're, you're kind of doing this. But moving on kind of from what the school to uh, prison pipeline is, can you talk a little bit about kind of who does this affect? So, you know, we, we talk about this pipeline. Is it affecting some children more than others? Uh, what, what's the uh, what's the impact here? You know, I'm going to I'm going to talk about talk about that in a minute. Here goes my voice. I hate that. But anyway, first, I'm going to talk about something you and I talked about. And that is, is this real? Did somebody just make up this word? And when I first heard it about two or three years ago, and I heard it because one of our, our, our uh, main children's advocacy agency for the state of Virginia was doing uh, a lot of state advocacy work on this. And I thought, school to prison pipeline? What in the heck is that? Uh, that, that is crazy. Um, and then I, as I did this research, this has been around, this term has been around since the early 2000s. It actually was put on paper in 2003, but the 
the the terminology and, and there was one paper called the, the, that explored the whole terminology about it uh, in in 2000 uh, well the paper was later but the whole idea is that there is actually what happens is these kids get by those practices they actually are funneled into a track that is not an educational track because those practices are keeping them out of the education track. They lose so much time from the education by being suspended, by being in seclusion, by being expelled, that they're losing. And not only by missing the time in education, it's by what happens to their um, psychological um, the psychological factors, the kids, and, and I'll, this slide actually illustrates it. So who are the kids that are impacted? Before, before we get there, I just want to bring up a, a comment that somebody left here and see if you have any, <clears throat> any, any uh, feedback on it, but they mentioned the No Child Left Behind issue as well. Uh, do you have anything to comment on in, in terms of No Child Left Behind as it relates to the school to prison pipeline? Yeah, and and I may I may confound issues here a little bit, but I think the no child left behind issue is probably a uh, thanks for the comment by the way. I think it's probably one of those things that's a um, uh, an unintended consequence kind of things because if I'm not mistaken, the no child left behind was one that had some of those high stakes testing thing, mm -hmm. which ended up pushing kids out. Um, which the the whole idea of no child left behind is you don't want to leave any behind, but it had the opposite effect. Gotcha. They don't; gotcha. these kids get left behind because so, so the schools don't want them. Yeah, let, let's transition then to that question of of impact and kind of uh, who is impacted by this. Are there there's some kids that are more impacted than others, and kind of the uh, the overall all impact to society um, with all of this. Well, well, let's start with, with what we have on this slide. <clears throat> this was a big surprise to a lot of people, and I don't know if our viewers may already know this, but preschool, pre-K kids, uh, those are kids before they get to kindergarten, are three times wow. as likely to be suspended as kids in kindergarten through 12th, through 12th grade, three times. Now, um, the, next, the next thing here that is so amazing one suspension, just one suspension, results in a student being 10 times as likely to drop out of school or come, in, come into contact with the police as kids who've never been suspended. Wow, that's, that's, that's an incredible statistic. It is. And so why is that? Uh, well, one of the things is because kids get disconnected from, from the school. I think that's my next slide, but it doesn't matter. Kids lose their connection with the school. They become... Um, they don't feel a part of it. They, they also, it does something to a kid's psyche. They, they become identified themselves as the bad kid. Um, and teachers see them as a bad kid. And that's a hard reputation to break. Um, so let's go, let's go on to the next slide. Um, so I, that's kind of what I was saying. The, this, is a, this is something that's, that's very hard to break. Uh, a child is, um, they're, they, they're different. They're, they're not like the other kids and they don't have this connection. Kids need this connection to community and to school and you're kicking them out and this bond that is so important is broken. 
So who else is, besides these very, very young kids, who else is impacted? And Walter Gilliam is someone who has done just remarkable work with these very young kids. And, and the research has shown that black children represent 18% of the preschool enrollment, but 48% wow. of, of the children receiving more than one out of school suspensions. And boys represent 54% of the preschool enrollment, but 79% of the, of the kids who are, who are suspended once and 82% of children suspended multiple times. And what, what the saying is, um, and it's not just black boys, black and boys, it's also the bigger kids. Mm -hmm. And what they found with the research is that teachers often uh, respond on the basis of fear about the kids, what the mm -hmm. kids might do. So they're afraid that the bigger kids are going to hurt the, the smaller kids. So go to the next slide. I think it's the one that talks about, yes, this is what studies have shown that is just so, uh, it's heartbreaking. Um, the studies have shown that it's not the child behaviors, it's the adult decisions because the mm -hmm. child's behaviors that are getting them expelled and suspended are most often typical child behaviors for the child's age. So these kids are getting expelled and suspended for things that kids their age do. But what's happening is you have teachers and um, support workers who haven't been adequately trained, who have preschool classes that are way too big for the number of, I mean, too many kids for the numbers of teachers. teachers. You don't have uh, con consultants like mental health consultants or support staff to assist the teachers. They also have They've shown that teacher factors like teacher depression and teacher job stress are factoring into this. So the suspensions and the expulsions are program factors and teacher factors more than kid factors. But who pays the price? The kids for the rest of their life. Um, and this is not to blame the teachers. It's, it's our, our society has got to see what we have to put the money into this, and we have not been able to um, muster up <laughs> the, the the will to put the money into this. Mm -hmm. So let's mm -hmm. let's move on yeah. to the next. I, I want to share a comment here real quickly and just get your your input on this as well from Alice. Uh, marginalization means a marginalized child's behavior is more likely to be seen as deserving of suspension, but also means that a marginalized child having been suspended in the past is more likely to be seen as proof that the behavior in the future should be seen as dangerous. I cannot tell you how much I saw that in these people's in research. And in fact, in the research from 2018, not research, it wasn't research, but this is commentary from um, oh, uh, places like, I can't think of the name right now, but it was in the 2018 um, uh, school safety report mm -hmm. that was used as part of a decision for rescinding the uh, 2014 uh, guidance 
or Obama guidance, uh, <laughs> because that is they that is exactly what was done. It is so wrong, but it is exactly um, the kind of philosophy that that is is done. Um, yeah, I want to bring up another comment here from from Joseph that's asked, and and one thing I want to point out to everybody is Beth has done a tremendous amount of research, and she'll be sharing uh, with the the audience a document that has uh, all of the sources that she's uh, been looking at in in this research. Uh, but Joseph brings up a really good research related question and asks, has there been any research into what these stats look like in Head Start programs? There probably has been, and I haven't sorted out to see the difference. And I do know that Gilly, uh, Walter Gilliam has been very involved in the um, Head Start programs. Um, so that that's something I'll look into. Okay, sounds um, good. See what I can find. Okay. Yeah, and I would encourage, again, our, our audience to uh, follow the Alliance uh, Facebook page if you're not, uh, because those are things that we can follow up with and post information after this um, interview as well. So be sure to follow us if you're not already doing so. There's so much that's unfair about this. It, it just, I had to put down while I was writing the paper, I had to put it down many, many times. Guy kept, write, kept uh, writing me and saying, when's the paper? It's overdue. When are you going to get it done? And uh, it was just devastating um, to write this because there was there's so much unfairness um, in this whole thing. So back to who does this impact? So um, looking at the at the restraint. I started out in this process looking at restraints because that's what uh, our organization does. And um, I was looking at kids with disabilities and I was so furious and I still am, I'm furious. Mm -hmm. and, and this is where my background comes from because um, in my family, we um, ha I have kids who've had disabilities and grandkids and 12% of the school population has disabilities, and th these statistics are from 2015 and 16. And the population of kids who are restrained is, is that 71%, mm -hmm. and kids who are secluded is 66%. So what does that tell us? That tells us that those kids are not getting their accommodations and that the teachers and administrators don't understand brain science. It, it infuriates me. Um, it, it just infuriates me. These this kids are not being um, treated fairly. It's, um, this isn't right. right, right. <laughs> you gotta move. Yeah. You gotta yeah. <laughs> And we have a comment from Ann on this as well, and just saying that mental health is sadly an area uh, too often uh, not having uh, proper services and resources and understanding of it all. So, you know, the, the often children that are disadvantaged not having the services that they need to be successful, uh, and, and then we're ending up uh, in situations like this. Right. So move on. Okay. So also... <clears throat> And this is, is this still restraints? Yes. So when we look at race and you can see, I'm, I'm gonna to point to the slide and you won't see me pointing, but if you look at the bottom, the bottom, the big, the dark blue is white and uh, whites are restrained um, in the, uh, they're restrained at approximately the same uh, proportion as the, as the kids uh, represent, are represented in the population a little more than they're represented in the population for 
seclusion. More are secluded than, than they are represented in the population. That was a little surprising to me. But when you look at black kids, they are um, secluded and restrained at much higher percentages than the population. Again, what's that all about? Mm-hmm. Not right. So then let's look at the um, kids who are referred to uh, law enforcement. And this is showing um, the, two th- the graph shows 2015-16 results. And white kids are referred to uh, law enforcement much less than the population. And it's reversed for black kids. Mm-hmm. The point I have here in the writing, I wanted to point out because this is very discouraging to me, is that it went up into that the, the, the proportion of kids referred to uh, law enforcement for black kids went up in 2015-16. And, and I thought, I hoped that we were going in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you can really see it looking at those graphics with the first first bar there being kind of the um, population by uh, by race and the second showing uh, referrals to law enforcement. And you look at the the dark blue there is the the uh, color representing white. And then you look at the uh, uh, for black and Af- or African-American. I mean, it, it's double 15 percent to 31 percent. I mean, it, it really is uh, a significant difference. And, uh, you know, really showing kind of the disproportionality uh, issue. So let's move on to the next one. So, and then let's go with disabilities. We have the same thing. Kids with disabilities represent 12% and 28% are referred to to law enforcement. So now here is uh, just such a disturbing, um, this is one of the graphics from our page. And I wanna highlight that 65% of children in juvenile prisons are disabled. And do you think they're getting any education in in prison? Well, actually in Virginia they are. They weren't a few years ago. Well, I shouldn't say that. A a report from a few years ago did not have favorable information at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Now, uh, last year I heard that it was better, but um, it has not been um, very good reporting from across the United States. But look, 65% of the kids in juvenile prisons are have disabilities. What is that about? That should tell us something. <laughs> and not yeah. something good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- this really does go to that question we started here with, which is which is who is impacted. And, you know, if you're disabled and you're black and you're male, <clears throat> uh, you know, just like with restraint and seclusion, uh, we see the school to prison pipeline follows a very similar uh, track. I want to bring up a, uh, a uh, question here from Dea, who asks, is, is there any mention in your research about community schools that partner well with the juvenile justice system? You know, Dea, I did not see that mentioned. <clears throat> and that's something I want to look into further, because actually, um, this is something our um, General Assembly required our, our state DOE in the previous year to develop a framework. And then this year they require, I don't know what will happen this year because of the pandemic, but this year they, nothing will happen because (laughs) this year they required the the state DOE to establish a mechanism for for, uh, school districts to 
create a way for um, local districts to apply for funding to start um, community schools, commu- community schools, right? Communities and schools. Yeah. And, and what I've read about them is that they are very, um, it looks very effective. And that's another thing I think we need to research. Yeah, just to hit on the the other point here in your slide, accommodation, not incarceration. You know, I think this is really important because we're we're again talking about children with you know disabled children. We're talking about uh, you know uh, African American, Black. We're talking about boys. Uh, we're talking about kids that are in a system and often not having their individual needs appropriately met. And the the end result of not having their needs appropriately met is these these children are, are not thriving. Uh, they're not only not thriving; they're they're entering up in this uh, school to prison pipeline, and it's really damaging uh, to to so many children. Yes. So I want to ask you, uh, kind of moving on, um, you know. So we've talked about what the school to prison pipeline is. We've talked mm-hmm. about who is disproportionately impacted by the school to prison pipeline. Uh, I'd like you to tell me a little bit <clears throat> about what made you decide to do this research and write this article. Well, I mentioned a little bit that <clears throat> I had family experiences with the school challenges. Actually, I, uh, with my, both of my boys had um, uh, diagnoses that I like to say they challenged the schools. <laughs> so, and then I, uh, I also had a granddaughter who's, I have a granddaughter who's um, mental health and diagnostic, other diagnostic challenges um, were also a challenge. And um, so I've had, uh, I've been immersed in, in mostly the mental health side of it, but also behaviors that were interpreted as willful, that were absolutely not willful behaviors, but were um, a result of, uh, and, and this is the, the part that has just been so frustrating and infuriating to me, is so much of school and um, the prison part is that the brain science has not been recognized. Mm-hmm. And so kids, kids are penalized over and over again for things that are not within their control. So that was a, a major thing that got me um, going with all this advocacy. And I was exposed to the ACEs research a couple of years ago and, and the connection there. And can you uh, define that for anybody that might oh, not be I'm aware of what the ACEs research is? <laughs> That's the adverse um, childhood experiences. And that was a study that was done in the late 90s that, that um, it was some ser- serendipitous findings that um, people that had had childhood experiences of um, um, domestic, uh, child abuse, uh, domestic abuse, um, there were like 10, 10 kinds of um, childhood uh, experiences. Some of them were with parent divorce, uh, mm-hmm. uh, parent um, abuse uh, of the spouse. Um, um, I, I can't remember all of them, but anyway, those children were impacted in ways that were, the connection never would have made, been made if they had not done this study. So they found that they impacted the, the parents' health um, in ways like their, their heart health, their um, uh, um, uh, immuno, um, mm-hmm, in, in, mm-hmm. What, right. what I'm, I can't think of the word I'm trying to say, uh, but anyway, all, all forms of health 
were impacted. They impacted the length of lifetimes, lifetime differences, depending on age, and not for the individual person, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm, in terms mm -hmm. of um, uh, by groups. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so it was really very impactful. And when I looked at the ACEs research, and when uh, I looked at kids with disabilities, already were, when you looked at those kids, so many things were, um, uh, struck me as similar. The mm -hmm. same kinds of, of treatment and ways to approach kids with kids who'd had trauma were the exact same things that we want to do with ki kids who have disabilities. You don't want to use punitive kinds of approaches. You want to use trauma sensitive kinds of approaches. Um, so I just saw such similarities with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. That that struck me. I learned about restraints and seclusion really honestly just a year ago. Uh, I was amazed. I had no idea this was going on in the schools. Um, and and so and as I learned about all these injustices, that that just made me want to write this. So um, I, that's why. So go on to the next slide. And you had a question for me that made me write this slide. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Um, so, you know, um, I, what, I, what I was really heading to. So, um, you know, you've done some pretty in-depth research. If anybody has seen the article, it is not a short article. It is it is very in-depth. Uh, there are a lot of references throughout the article, a lot of research that went into it. So it's very in-depth. And I guess my question for you is having this uh, opportunity now to, to have this interview and talk about the article, talk about the issue of the school-to-prison pipeline. What are kind of the primary take-home messages you'd want someone to gain from this research? So uh, what I saw was they, they were that that whenever I, I think we all know that whenever you make any changes or you make any laws or policies, you have to know that there's a possibility of unintended consequences. And I think we all have to recognize that we need to be on the lookout for that and we need to be able to change when we see those unintended consequences. And what, what I learned, and I get and I, I think I should talk about this later, it doesn't matter, I'll just say it now. Um, these, these things started started happening back in the groundwork was laid in the 70s um, when the um, the war on poverty they decided that was lost. And then it seemed that um, it changed instead of a war on poverty, it became a war on people. War on people is what it feels like it became. Mm -hmm. And um, and so it was, um, so they, they go ahead to the next slide. So there were, as they made all these, the laws that I talked about earlier, these um, those things like that ended up with the suspensions and the zero tolerance mm -hmm. and all those things, the consequences were these suspensions and these uh, police in school and these uh, expulsions. And what we ended up with, someone talked about mental health uh, not being addressed. Well, what we ended up with were uh, millions of students in schools without counselors, millions mm -hmm. of students in schools with police but without counselors, with police with no nurses, with schools with police with no school psychologists schools with police with no social workers, schools with police but no social workers, counselors, nurses, or psychologists or social workers. And schools with police reported three to five times, 
3.5 times as many arrests as schools without police. So instead of schools being this nurturing, safe place for students to learn, they became this place where kids were punished for what mm -hmm. they didn't know. And school kids are learning. Their brains are in a process of development. Their brains are not fully developed until they're in their mid-20s to, to, to even later. Mm -hmm. Yet, schools became a place where kids were penalized for what for for every mistake they made go right. ahead to the next one right I, and, if, and if we combine that from from what you were talking about with the the aces research so the, the the trauma research so here are children that have had uh you know adverse childhood experiences who have been traumatized who then rather than getting the support from counselors and school psychologists and social workers rather than getting support they're getting additional punishment so Absolutely. we're taking yeah yeah which really gets to the the heart of this problem when when we've got uh, police in schools, but no school psychologists and no counselors, uh, you know, we're, we're certainly, I mean, you're setting up that system that is moving kids from school to prison. Yeah. So <clears throat> some of the research I found was, so what are the roles of police in school, schools? And so police supposedly were put in schools. And actually, police were in schools back in the 40s and 50s. Not very many, just a very few. Um, and the roles as they were put in when the um, laws in the 80s and 90s, um, uh, the laws come later. So uh, one was on gun control, one was on drug control. Um, they were there to um, keep uh, to keep kids safe and to keep intruders out. They weren't supposedly were not supposed to be enforcing discipline, but uh, as time went, as teachers were busy, they ended up getting pulled into discipline. And you can see, this is from a survey that Educational Week did, a research uh, branch of edu Educational Week. And so this is how 400 um, police and schools described their work. Um, and they, so they described their work as enforcing laws, um, Let's see, teaching was a very small part, that 2%. Um, oh, I forgot to put the, what the other was. Uh, enforcing laws was 41%. I, I don't understand what laws you have to enforce in schools. That was a little baffling to me. Mm -hmm. Mentoring. In places where it goes well, police see themselves as being mentors. Uh, strong mentors for for students and being real good um, role role models. Yeah, that's the word role models. Um, so, but if we look over here at the other side, which is hard to see, it's a a small slide. Um, and look at what kind of training these folks have had. The the thing that's really um, sad is um, how much how many have had training on the teen brain. Mm. Thirty thirty seven percent on on child trauma. 39% uh, on working with special education students, 54%. Um, there's, there's not consistent training on, mm -hmm, on what the, mm -hmm. the police have had. Mm -hmm. So go on, go on to the next slide. And, and here is, is what I probably everybody on here has, has seen the, the reports on the news and all the video clips on YouTube and uh, Facebook of all the, the just horrifying scenes you see 
of police slamming kids against the wall and slamming kids, uh, pulling them from their desks. These are incidents of assaults um, on students. Each one of these represents uh, an incident, mm -hmm. a violent incident, assault mm -hmm. of a police um, against a student. Gotcha. So then another take home message that I'd like um, is that underfunding education destroys our capacity to meet the very basic legal requirements as well as the ethical and moral requirements. And this has been, I had no idea how underfunded the school system was. And as I read, uh, before I did the deep research um, and I read all these articles about how it, it's the different factions blaming the other faction. Parents are always blamed. Parents are, are responsible mm -hmm. for their child's bad behavior. And I experienced that back in the 80s and 90s. Okay. And, and then my, my son experienced it with his, his daughter. And, um, and I hear it all the time from parents who are posting. And I see it all the time in things that are posting. Well, if they just do a better job of raising their kids. And it's so unfair and un... Um, unfounded um, and ineffective. It's just wa wasting time and breath to have that kind of response. Um, it shows a great lack of understanding of behavior and brain science. Uh, but the, the point is we are missing the boat to be blaming and casting stones at each other. Um, this underfunding of education uh, has uh, has destroyed the capacity of special education to meet its basic um, requirements. It's destroyed the ability of teachers, uh, e even in regular ed, to do what they need to do, let mm -hmm. alone to do what uh, to do inclusive education, which mm -hmm. is better for everyone. Because what we see in um, what we see is that kids, and I, I've looked at the research that, um, especially what Walter Gilliam does, is that kids begin to get their uh, biases when they're uh, older than three and four and five. That's when the bias starts to come in, whether it's with kids that are different from disability or from race or whatever. That's, that's, what, I'm, what, that's what I think I'm seeing more of. It's when the kids are younger and they're together, there's not as much bias. But when we start separating the kids, that's when the bias starts developing. So it's harder to put the kids together who already have developed all these biases. Kids, kids that when they're young are, are great together and they help each other and they support each other. But when you don't have the funding to adequately support um, all kids, um, you, people just take pot shots at each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So anyway, the funding is a big issue. So the equity, the, another take home thing that I hope everybody gets, the equity and the discrimination are, are really complex and they're hard to sort through which is which and people people um, make up <laughs> one, of the, one, of the, one of the points that uh, someone brought up earlier about, you know, it's, it's, it really is true that this, this research is, is wrong. They, it really is that it's not that, that there's this bias. It really is black kids are uh, doing more um, deserving. They, they deserve, they're doing more stuff that is 
um, right. bad behavior. No, that is not true at all. The research is consistently showing that is not true. And it's not because one of the things that was these people making this assertion was was laying it on. First, they tried to lay it on poverty. Nope. The research is showing it's not the fault of poverty. When you test for poverty, it's not when you when you do the research to say, mm -hmm. is it it's not poverty. When you factor out all the stuff, it is there's bias. And one of the things I learned in doing this, it's implicit bias, which all of us have. Black, white, other races, other cultures, we all have our own bias. But there's another kind of bias that was very, uh, another piece of the bias that I just got a, a huge aha. Um, and that is how bias is built into our, our laws and our codes. And so you may be very fairly implementing your laws and your codes, and you're still having these horrendous um, differences in how people are being um, um, the rates because the very laws are biased. Mm. And so, for example, um, dress codes that involve hair, how you wear your hair, or how or or that you can't have um, uh, hair cover head head coverings, and they're biased against a religion that that has a head covering, or they're biased against hairstyles that include um, uh, uh, what are the what are the thing called um, what are the what are, I'm I'm losing my words right now. What, okay. what, are, what are the things where you have uh, rows? Give me the word. It's not braids. It's <laughs> somebody give me a word. Type it <laughs> in okay, the okay. We'll, we'll, we'll roll with it. <laughs> anyway, then you get kicked out of school because of because you didn't meet the the um, the code. Well, that was a biased law, a biased code. So anyway, all right. So then another huge take home thing to me was this thing that um, uh, our solutions are often based on, and this is what I see in, in, the, in the, uh, the headlines. And what we saw, there's one group um, that, that infiltrates itself. Um, there's, there's a um, think group uh, up in northern, the northern states that inter introduces itself into the newspaper um, articles. But anyway, the, the solutions are often based on either or thinking. Either we allow unruly children to run the classroom and hurt the teachers, or we have to keep them out of the classroom. It's as though everything is an either or solution, which is entirely ridiculous. It's a failure to consider the multitude of factors that contribute to the problem. It's like they're not this, the, these other solutions. And that's, that's very dangerous thinking. Right, children that are not being appropriately accommodated, or right. not having their their IEPs uh, implemented with fidelity, uh, or don't have access to a counselor or a school psychologist. I mean, there, there's so many things that factor into this, and and you're right, it's a very black and white thinking of you know this or this, um, when in fact a lot of this comes down to the fact that we need to be appropriately meeting the needs of of children individually, as is the the law state that we should be doing. Right. Go on to the next one. 
So, and when it, and as I went all through all this, I just kept thinking, this is not so hard. If all the legislators, all the educational leaders, all the politicians looked at these statistics, there's 20 years of this, and the dramatic changes that occurred <laughs> that that occurred when specific laws were implemented. It should be clear that kids who have been imprisoned and deprived of an education inappropriately, this was wrong. They should be chomping at the bit to make changes. Mm -hmm. So one of my next questions is, you know, when you went into this research, you had a, a good foundation of knowledge about this to start with, or, or uh, I think, uh, you know, what, what would have seemed like a pretty good foundation in this. But the more you dug in, I know that we were kind of going back and forth as you were working on this article and you're like, well, I read this and then I ran into this and then I found this. Um, so, so tell me, you know, as you did this research, what surprised you and did you learn anything that you weren't expecting as you kind of went into all of this? Well, like I told you, every time I read an article, it's like there were five more articles I found. And I was just floored by how bad it was. The kids were, here are the examples. Kids were suspended or expelled for sharpening a pencil without permission. Four months they were suspended. Mm. Are you kidding me? Poking another student with a ballpoint pen. Expelled for the remainder of the year. Possession of an antibiotic. You take to school your antibiotic and your permanent expulsion. And what kind of mm. thinking is that? Starting a snowball fight, expelled. Going to the next one. Uh, kids have been incarcerated for a dress code infraction like wearing the wrong color socks. I mean, are adults making these decisions? Tardiness. And tardiness, not only tardiness, now, there are also suspensions for missing school, skipping school. So we suspend them. How does that make sense? Right. What kind right. of craziness is that? Right. Using vulgar language. So using vulgar language, we're going to incarcerate a kid, incarcerate a kid yelling at teachers, going to the bathroom or leaving the class without permission. We're going to put a kid in jail for that? I, I, I just... Uh, uh, there are no words for it. Yeah, yeah, and, and of course, you know, being very involved in uh, the restraint seclusion issue, these are often very similar types of things that we find for kids that are getting restrained and secluded. Uh, I live in Maryland, and Maryland's law basically says that you should only be restrained and secluding a child if they pose an imminent serious physical harm to themselves or others. That means kind of a life or death uh, type of injury, yet kids are routinely suspended, uh, excuse me, um, uh, secluded or uh, restrained for far lesser things. It could be uh, being disrespectful, not being compliant. I mean, I've heard kids and had experiences with my own uh, being secluded and restrained for flipping light switches off and on, not cleaning up their area, um, you know, splashing water. Uh, again, you know, the, the criteria is, is much, much higher. And the same holds true here where we're seeing uh, kids ending up in the school to prison pipeline for minor behavioral infractions. And, you know, the, the, the statistic you mentioned earlier about the, the single suspension or expulsion, I mean, you know, I mean, once kids, uh, and, and I think one of our, our um, commenters made this comment as well, but once there's that perception that this is a bad kid, uh, that goes and lives with that child and, and kind of moves on. That is awful. So I wanted the funding. I had no idea that this, the funding was so bad for IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. It was authorized when it was 
uh, introduced back in uh, whatever year it was, back in the 70s, I think, um, for 40% of what the expected cost was. And they, they figure that out every year. And it's always been in the 16 to 8, well, not always, it started out low and worked up to the 16 to 18% range, except for the year where we had the RRA funds, the, I forget what that stands for. But anyway, for the last several years, it's been under 15%, and this year it's at 13%. Uh, unbelievable. And mm -hmm. uh, state funding has been um, below the pre-recession levels for us for the last 10 years for most states. Virginia hasn't caught up yet. So you have a combination of state and federal years grossly underfunded, just grossly underfunded. So move on to the next, because we've really- Yeah, oh. I, I'm gonna just share one more comment before we do, uh, it's oh, kind yeah. of more relevant to the last slide, but uh, Spectrum Life kind of brought up this comment about autistic uh, children, the autistics being, uh, suspended, punished for autistic behavior. Uh, it's against the law and their rights under IDEA, but it happens all the time. Uh, it's only because they're not getting their accommodations. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing here is that, uh, you know, kids are often not getting their accommodations for many reasons, but the funding is certainly a big, um, a big aspect of that as well. Uh, schools that aren't properly funded don't have the ability um, or the resources sometimes to meet the accommodations that they should be meeting for children. Absolutely. But I also think with autism and, and I just learned in the last, um, I don't know, several years about autism, which is really, um, I have to say it's embarrassing what it took for me to learn because I've been in the disability world um, all my life. And it was through, through learning through my family uh, more about autism. And I didn't understand how um, how the the um, the anxiety impacted the ability to communicate, and how with anxiety um, the communication could be um, it's just like just like I'm doing right now. Um, you you could freeze. Um, you could not be able to to express uh, verbally when you were highly anxious. And I, I see kids, um, and I have to change this too, because I grew up having it hammered into me, person first language. And I know autistics pre prefer the autistic first language. So autistics are, uh, they are so um, mistreated and misunderstood because of the communication issues. It is unconscionable what is done because people don't take, because people are do not understand um, and don't take the time to understand the, the communication, the way autistics are communicating. And, and I understand funding is a lot. I also know that we have got to, there's a lot we can learn on our own. And there's a lot of information out there um, that I, I, I wish I, I I wish that um, I wish that everybody working in the schools and I do not mean to put anyone down at all because I think I think teachers are overworked. There's a lot out there that 
um, everyone can do on their own. There's a lot of good research. I mean, not research. There's a lot of, a lot of good references, a lot of good. I've learned a lot from um, the internet um, and books and, and talking to people who have autism and who write about it. So, okay, I'm gonna get off my soapbox. Um, so, sorry, <laughs> that's just really important to me. Okay, I was surprised by how it started. And I, I mentioned this before, the war on poverty was replaced with domestic war, warfare, which was an emphasis on repression, surveillance, surveillance and control. And the view of youth changed in the 80s and 90s. So instead of offering compassion and support, schools became rigid and intolerant. It's just heartbreaking. So the zero tolerance laws, I, I mentioned that. It was the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 86 and the gun-free laws of 94. And so the laws, a lot of these, the, the police in schools, what I was reading about was um, it was easy to get police in schools because some of these laws um, uh, provided federal funding for policemen. There was no funding available for social workers and psychologists and counselors, but federal funds provided funds for policemen. So that's some of the disproportionality with those um, staff. So this, this is what surprised me too, is that it's, you know, every time there's a school shooting, there's this knee-jerk reaction that, oh gosh, we gotta have more police in the school. We gotta have metal detectors. We gotta have all these things when there's been nothing to show that this has made the school safer. None of that has made the school safer. The schools and the police have, police in the schools have not made the schools safer against school sh shootings. They haven't. And the by the same token, disciplinary issues within the schools don't have not resulted in questioning the effectiveness of the particular discipline system. But instead, there's renewed efforts to double down on the harsh disciplinary practices, which have been shown to be counterproductive. It's baffling. So. <clears throat> And here I just say it again, it's, um, it's been extensively researched. There are reports after reports from the Children's Defense Fund and from the, um, you, I, I guess, ACLU and the UCLA. <laughs> I guess ACLU. Too confused. <laughs> ACLU. Yeah, these reports that have recommendations and, and still we have it continue. Um, it, it's frustrating. Um, this is the one that I'm confounded with, uh, the widespread lack of knowledge about brain science and the key importance of relationships. Every single um, scientific uh, thing you read, every recommendation says the key to solving this is um, relationships and relational safety um, and regulation and co-regulation. That's regulation of our, of our uh, brain and body. Um, that what happens so much in these behaviors is what's called state-dependent functioning. The brain moves from our, our um, thinking part of our brain down to the lower parts of the brain mm -hmm. as we get stressed. And we have the autonomic reactions, which are not um, uh, 
uh, controlled by our thinking part. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to solve those by the type of um, uh, management systems that are those uh, control management systems that uh, are so popular. And, and of course, this, this again is is the issue with things like restraint and seclusion. You know, a kid that's in fight fight or flight or freeze mode um, is not able to access kind of their their uh, frontal cortex and and be rationed with at that point. Um, you know, we've really got to be understanding the the neuroscience and and agreed with you 100. percent There's all this science out there that's available for people. Uh, that can help us um, better work with kids. And, and the relationship one is so big. Uh, you know, if I had a nickel for every time I, I went to an IP meeting and talked about the importance of relationship, um, <laughs> I'd have a lot of a lot of nickels. But but yeah, absolutely. Th these same things that are important for preventing restraint and seclusion are the same things that are important for reducing the school to prison pipeline. Absolutely. Uh, and the other thing that's just so, so difficult for me, and, and this is in, in regards to this, it's also in regards to what we see happening with the um, uh, coronavirus, is, is just realizing the degree of discrimination, disregard, and devaluing of people with, people who are different, mm -hmm. minorities and people with neurodiversities and disabilities. Mm -hmm. It's it's um, heartbreaking. So um, I, this quote from Ellen Goodman was just, this was in 2000, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll read it for anybody who doesn't have a, the screen. Zero tolerance for misbehavior evolved into zero tolerance for kids themselves. We've developed an attitude, and not just in schools, where zero tolerance often translates into a quick and dirty way of kicking kids out. We're in a time of general crackdown, a tough love without the love. Hmm. Heartbreaking. Okay, so what so solution... Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Let, 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 let's transition into, you know, uh, what is the solution for the problem and, and what kind of things have been tried uh, to date and, and, and what can we do to, to hopefully begin moving forward on this? Okay, so I'm just going to breeze through this because I think everybody knows we've tried all these things. Doubling down on the harsh disciplinary practices, adding more police to schools, school-wide behavior management programs, alternative schools, um, restorative practices and trauma-informed sensitive, trauma-informed, trauma-sensitive and trauma-transformative practices. There may be other names for, for that. And uh, go ahead. Did you want to ask me how they've worked? Uh, tell me, tell me how they work. <laughs> so first of all, we know more of the same is not working. Um, so go ahead, go, go back to the other one, thank you. Uh, more of the same is not working. We know that all of those, um, harsh disciplinary stuff doesn't work. It's been proven over and over and over. It doesn't work. Now, PBIS, the thing about PBIS that is so interesting to me is that even today, every single report uh, comes back and says, so the answer to this is po positive behavior, interventions, and supports. Now, um, if, if any of y'all saw my report on the problem with behaviorism, you'll see that I'm not a fan because um, uh, as it's laid out, uh, the way I've seen it is that it relies on behaviorism. Uh, I think tiered, tiered um, systems of support is a great idea because not everybody needs all the, all the three layers of support, but some people need different levels of support. 
but behaviorism um, is absolutely, uh, it doesn't take into consideration the brain science. It leaves out what the kids think, it leaves out the, um, the autonomic system, it leaves out, um, it leaves out all of the, the new brain science. Um, and it doesn't work for kids with disabilities. It doesn't work for kids with neurodifferences. It absolutely, we hear it all the time from our, our parents of kids. Um, these are the kids that are getting um, restrained and secluded and are, and are getting um, referred uh, to the prison pipeline, yeah. it's, it's just not working. The, the, the sticker chart is not the answer to a lot of the challenges that are there out there, but uh, sometimes these kind of incentive and consequence-based models uh, don't, don't understand the neuroscience, don't understand the importance of relationship, don't understand the significance of relational safety, uh, and at, at the end aren't helping kids to succeed. Yeah, so it baffles me why it is always listed. and, and I. Uh, the only thing I can think of is because it has a really nice name. Um, so anyway, and there, there's all, all, always reports about research is showing evidence-based results. But I don't know whether those results are long-term, whether they're with all kids or that just a proportion of the kids. Um, I think there's a lot to explore in that. Okay. So <clears throat> the restorative practices, I hear mystery uh, uh, reports, and I suspect um, there hasn't been enough to look at that because the the reports that I've heard have been really good um, about places that are doing it well. Mm -hmm. um, the trauma-informed practices, the places that I have heard about have been really good, really promising. Mm -hmm. Um, so then when I say data is lacking, what I'm talking about, we just saw that report from the Civil Rights uh, Commission. The, the data is just, there's no, no central place where we're seeing what's happening across the United States. No central depository to see, to be able to track what's happening well. I've been trying to collect where, where is it going well? What schools are doing a really good job? And there are some that are doing really well. Uh, and I know that I've been looking at what's going on with the neurosequential model, um, and that seems to be going really well. Um, so I, it really, to me, seems that the ones that are uh, the, the trauma-informed, trauma-sensitive, trauma-transformative are doing well. So why is it so hard? It takes a long time to go from research to practice. Um, I don't think it should be that hard given the fact that we have instantaneous communication with the internet. I, I, I don't get that. We do know that people get stuck in doing things the way they've always right. done. Um, go ahead, did you wanna say something? Uh, I was just gonna say cult culture is often a big thing when it comes to restraint and seclusion, that this is the way they've been taught to do things, this is the way they do things, and as a result, we get stuck with models that aren't aren't working and aren't helping people, but you know, they're, they're what's done. Right. Um, people fear and resist change. I think people get backed into a corner that instead of discussing, it's just like what's happening at the national level with, with politics. Instead of discussing and being open, we get polarized. And so I 
think we have got to all um, find a way. And I, I, it's hard because I, I, I found myself as I was reading this just being so furious um, that we got to find a way to back off and find the common ground because mm-hmm. we can't have a discussion when we're mad right, <laughs> and right. curious. So we've got to find a way to find the common ground and then be able to have the discussion so that people will be able to hear our perspectives. Mm-hmm. So I think it's hard because politics and money have been taking precedence over humanity. We've been seeing that for the last 20 years, 20, maybe 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we're in a society where it's been productivity, productivity, productivity. Um, and we've that's just been what the it, what's been happening. And the sad thing is children and parents are lost in the shuffle. So but now we have some opportunities we've never had because with this, uh, everyone ha- is now experiencing a level of stress that we've never everybody's having the same experience that nobody has ever had in in this generation. Before. And you're referring to the, the COVID issue right now, I assume. Yes, yes. And this is something um, Bruce Perry is, uh, he is um, one of the most famous trauma researchers. He's a psychiatrist and a um, researcher, a neuroscientist um, and a teacher. Um, and he he's doing open office hours from uh, two to three on Mondays, Wednesdays, Wednesdays. <laughs> Wednesdays and Fridays, and he's doing all kinds of teaching. He's got, a, I've got him on our resource list where you can listen in, um, you can on his Zoom sessions, and you can also read all his resources where he's, he's providing information about how to uh, make it through this. Um, but he's giving, um, we're all experiencing the same kind of stress, and he's, he's teaching strategies um, to deal with this on an individual personal basis, but also organizationally. So, but the other thing that's happening is we've seen schools operate in a way we've never seen it. Rules have been broken that have never been, I shouldn't say broken, they've been changed. Red tape has been slashed. Um, Now we have a time, maybe we can get to some of these leaders to say, here's some resources, Maybe you have some time now. You could read this, catch up on some brain science. Um, so, and when I, the last point is, is about uh, Bruce um, Perry, that maybe we can get this information to some of these leaders. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, go ahead to the next slide. Um, so I think now's a good time for us to um, solve this. Let's, let's prioritize the funding for education. By, and by the funding, I'm talking about funding to give, funding to get as many educators as we need funding to get so that we have as many bodies as we need so that these people in the field have time to be educated so that we can get as much support staff so we can get us enough um, psychologists and social workers and counselors. Um, We need to have the nation, states and communities putting the welfare of students ahead of politics. We need collaboration of all the child and family serving agencies and organizations. And this is a part of communities and schools that you mentioned, Dea. Um, we all of us need to adopt attitudes of humility, humility and commitment. And, and no matter how all, all of us, we all of us have things that we do well and don't do well. 
And I think we have to come to the table recognizing that in order to move together and to move forward. And we need to commit to learning, um, come forward mm -hmm. with a, a learning attitude. Mm -hmm. And 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 here are some of the things you can see. We've we've got to we've got to commit to recognizing our own biases and, and learning how to um, to break through those biases and learn about the brain science and the impact of politics. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but before we get to this about um, individuals, I just had a quick question for you. Um, so, you know, you and I have talked about this quite a bit, and every time I, I listen to you speak about it, more things enter into my head, and I, I learn so much more. Um, but one of the things that I was thinking about is, if, if I'm not mistaken, you know, the United States has one of the highest rates of incarceration in the world. How how does that play into it? How does the the prison system in the the U.S. and our rates of incarceration? Do you think that? Uh, I mean, obviously, one 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 feeds into the other, but is there research that really gets into that as well? Um, yeah, it, it back in the in the eighties and the nineties, when when those laws were passed, a couple things happened um, with the drug enforcement and the uh, three strikes you're out mm -hmm. and no probation. Uh, our prison systems exploded and. The there was also some there's also a lot of discussion about whether there was um, profit motives went in there mm -hmm. and whether that um, contributed to that. And there's some debate about how much that contributed. Yeah. And I've seen so, some of the comments that, that brought up things like prison labor. And I was kind of curious, um, you know, if you, if you got into any of that in your research. Um, Prison labor, meaning, uh, meaning from, right, right, profiting, right. Yeah. So some some of what I looked at, there was one article, and I I think it is one of the references that actually the for profit prisons is actually a small percentage of what the prisons is, prisons are. Though there's a lot of profit in some of the ancillary things like the food services mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. Industry, right? Yeah, but a lot of the issue it has been, I I think, was with the the lack of um, a lot of the drug stuff, people getting um, imprisoned for drugs, gotcha, and gotcha. also the the three strikes you're out, mm -hmm. and and no no parole. Mm -hmm. So uh, some of those laws, and and I saw it in uh, actually this year's um, general assembly in, in Virginia was very gratifying because there were a lot of uh, a lot of progress was made at the juvenile le level. And um, also some things, progress was being made at the um, general prison level. Gotcha. Not as much as we'd like, but they're starting to start, turn some things around. Okay. I will okay. say, I do want to make the comment that at the school level, three laws were passed uh, regarding uh, school resource officers to require specific training, to require memorandums of agreement every two years that the public had to have notice of, and to require um data and of uh, course that that was in virginia correct yeah okay okay so, uh, every, so those things every, may not be equal across the yeah the but i would recommend every state work with the legislator and look at legislation mm -hmm. and look at that the other okay. thing is that they had two laws related to they had laws related to what has to be reported to the police so they they removed the requirement that um about what about uh, a couple things that had to be reported to police and they also removed, um, oh, there's something called 
one thing that they said cannot be it will not be a, a criminal offense anymore. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what it's called, but they, they decriminalized a couple of things that used to be a criminal gotcha, gotcha. at school. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, this is a good a good segue into kind of uh, wrapping up here. We're talking about what individuals might be able to do to affect change, and then we'll we'll try to end with a couple of questions if there are a few. Um, so, with that, um, what can what can people in our audience do, or people that might uh, listen to this later? What what kind of things might they want to do? Well, <clears throat> I'm I'm putting this thing first because I think you always have to be sure your child knows you love him or her, no matter what. Because Absolutely. When you get so mad at what's going on, it's really easy for your child to think you're mad at them. Hmm. So I think you have to make a conscious, deliberate, um, uh, constant uh, effort to be sure. And, and and I say some of these things because I'm not sure I did a very good job of that. Um, so that's the first thing. You have to uh, educate yourself about the impact of stress and state-dependent functioning. And again, uh, to do that, go to that website, Bruce Perry's website, um, and learn about uh, how to regulate yourself throughout the day so you can remain calm for your child because your child reads your body language more than they hear your words. Uh, know your rights. Uh, become knowledgeable about your school and your districts or states and or code of conduct. And, and the data regarding suspensions, expulsions, restraints, and seclusion, so you'll know what you're working with, with your school and your state. And de uh, develop a collaborative relationship with your school's teachers and your support staff, principal, oh good, I spelled it right, all the school personnel, um, because that's the only way you're going to really get something. Do you think I'm going to remember the last one that was on that one? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had, I had a quick quick finger there. Um, you want to you want to uh, uh, develop relationships with other um, parents too, because what we hear over and over again is people feeling like they're alone, and you're not alone. There are yeah. so many people out there who feel like they're alone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, dad, yeah, that, that's a big reason why we started the the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint. Is that one of the big goals is for people that are going through this is they know that they're not alone and that they can influence change. And I mean, I think it's the same mm -hmm. thing here. Is that you know, we're not alone in this and we can influence change. Mm -hmm. Educate yourself and then educate school staff about brain science and the impact of trauma, stress and anxiety on kids' ability to learn and on their behavior. Um, and there are a lot of ways you can do that and become in involved with the parent teacher groups and resist the urge to blame. Find that common ground. Yeah, and on the educate yourself front, um, you know, we're going to be having a series of uh, talks in the coming weeks from from various um, amazing people like Mona Delahook and Dr. Ross Green and others, um, which is a good good opportunity for people to educate themselves on on some of these concepts. Um, so, you know, we're really excited to hopefully help in that um, help in that cause. So um, other things you can do is work with your local and state school boards by making public comments, by serving on the boards and advisory boards, and by participating in work groups. Uh, work with the media to bring public awareness to inappropriate practices. And you're not going to do all these things, but they're, they're ones that will feel right to you. And get to know your legislators and work with them to introduce bills to change policies and practices. So we've got a whole list of um, 
resources here. And Guy, you can you might want to take it from here about how you can make those available. Sure, sure. So um, first of all, I'll say while I'm, while I'm giving this uh, information, if anybody has any final questions, we've got a, a couple minutes for a couple questions. So feel free to type those in the comments if you have any questions that you'd like us to address. Um, but beyond that, I wanted to mention that not only will this uh, presentation be available uh, both through Facebook and also on YouTube, uh, we'll also have the slides available if anyone's interested in, in seeing the slides. Uh, we're also uh, putting together, and, and I say we, uh, it's, the, it's the royal we, but Beth put together this fantastic uh, document with a lot of the uh, resources. Uh, so with links and information about the various resources that were used in her research. So if you're interested in, in learning more or digging in deeper, uh, by all means, also check out the article on the website, which is, uh, you know, has all of the uh, different sources that were used in that research. But we will be making these things available uh, through the uh, the Facebook page and, um, you know, invite you to, uh, um, you know, use those resources as well. So there are quite a few. We, we're not going to go through these all individually right now, but I'm just going to kind of pan through and you can see that we've got a lot of research that went into this. Um, you know, this was uh, by no means just kind of a, a, a quick and easy, uh, you know, research piece to write, but it's really important. I mean, we absolutely uh, need to, you know, if, if we think that there are things that we can do to improve this, we, we need to affect a positive change. So with all of that, um, and uh, I'll give a minute to see if anybody else has any final questions. Uh, we've also got a link of organizations here uh, to look for for more information. Of course, I would invite you, uh, if you're not a member already of our, our group, the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint, to follow us. Uh, this is an issue that we're very concerned with and highly related to uh, the restraint and seclusion issue. Uh, so there, there's a lot of great uh, resources and information here that you'll be able to go and take a look at after this. So, uh, Beth, do you have any final real just kind of high level take home uh, messages? I know we talked about kind of specifics, but you know, what, what's your big take home for people that are watching this today? You should have told me I was going to have to come up with a take home thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I want to say if you have resources, when I whenever I put together resources like this, I think, I, I usually come up with what I've been looking at the most recently, and there are probably some really, really good ones that I have left out. So if you have some, please send them uh, because I'd like to update it um, if there are any to do there. So what I would say with, with um, a high level what to take home is um, uh, this, that the message that really stands out to me is that whatever impacts one of us really impacts all of us. And um, that's the message I want to get to our legislators. And uh, for me, I had the, the experience I had this year, I was able to, because I'm retired, I had time to go to lots of the subcommittee meetings and to go, go meet with uh, a number of the legislators and their staff. And they were really receptive. So I think that there's a lot of power in that. So uh, take that step and let's work together. And I think we can make some powerful changes. Absolutely. Beth, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fantastic. You know, you've been, I know you've been working on that article uh, for, <laughs> for months and I think this is a great way to, to bring it to people as well to kind of hear some of the, the main messages and really, really appreciate your dedication, not just to this, this issue, but all you've been doing with the, the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, we've got a, a fantastic uh, team uh, here really working hard to, to make some positive change and really appreciate you doing this. 
Uh, I want to thank everybody that that's been on here live with us. The the hope, of course, is that uh, if you felt that this was valuable, that you'll share this with your your friends and your pages that you might follow. That this would be relevant to. The more we can get people educated about these issues, I think the the better we have a, a changing things. I will remind you just here real quickly is that we do have a, a number of other things that will be coming up here in the near future. Uh, including a, a great presentation uh, next week uh, from Dr. Mona Della Hook, which is about understanding behavior, uh, kind of beyond behavior and challenging times. And if you're not familiar with Mona's work, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, talks a lot about kind of different uh, different approaches and and uh, uh, you know kind of uh, non volitional behavior and top down and bottom up. And she's got a fantastic uh, a book called um, Beyond Behavior as well. So I would encourage you to uh, join us for that uh, next week. Um, so we've got some great things coming on. And I just wanted to, again, thank everybody for uh, joining on today. Um, you know, this is our first time doing this. And, uh, you know, I, I think things went pretty well. I mean, you know, I think uh, over, <laughs> overall things went well. And uh, hopefully this has been uh, been useful to everybody. So, again, uh, thank you. And uh, please share this. And uh, we look forward to providing more programs like this in the future. So thanks again. And thank you, Beth. Thank you, Guy.